Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Hay 2017. This horribly rainy morning, but that's not going to deter us. Uh, this talk you're about to hear is uh, one of the uh, lectures we've had in association with the University of Cambridge, which is a wonderful partnership which allows us access to some of the cutting-edge research that we uh, get a chance to hear about before the, well, when the book is there, but you can then go and buy the book. So uh, I'm just here to say, please welcome the speaker. Please remember that at the end of the session, she will be signing a copy of the book in the bookshop and in, just across there in the festival site. Ros Ridley is going to talk today about Peter Pan and the mind of J.M. Barry. Uh, I, I am actually the children's programmer uh, here, and of course Peter Pan is so central uh, in children's literature uh, to all our thinking about what childhood is and growing up. Now, I know that's not exactly the subject of this talk, but I know you will be in for a fascinating lecture. Thank you very much, and please welcome Ros Ridley. No, no, <laughs> I beg your pardon. Good morning. Um, I'm a neuroscientist, and I'm going to talk to you about the human psychology and the, from the point of view of cognition, and also about child development, as is shown in the works of J.M. Barry, and particularly his stories about Peter Pan. Now... Jane Barry was born in 1860, which is just the year after Darwin. And Darwin will feature large in this talk. So I'm arguing that Barry had been very influenced by the work of Darwin. He died in 1937, which is at a time when brain science and neurology was beginning to be taken extremely seriously, but it was way before the era of modern psychology, MRI scans and uh, molecular biology and all those sorts of things. So he was very much a man of his time, but I will argue also that he's a man of the future. He saw things which science has only caught up with recently. Now, to start to convince you that this is really, Barry is all about Darwin and man's place in nature and what it is to be human, if you look at the um, green uh, emblem on the left, that is taken from the front cover of the second edition of one of the Peter Pan stories. And you can see Peter Pan in a state of nature, he has no clothes on, and he is playing pan pipes. So he is Pan, playing Pan pipes. And Pan, of course, is a Greek god of nature and wildness and life without the tr troubles of civilization. And that is a theme which goes through all of Barry's work. Now, I need to orientate you in time. The books were written at the turn of the century, uh, the, the 19th to the 20th century. There are four works which include Peter Pan. There's the first book, which is The Little White Bird, is a novel for adults, which includes within it a story where a man takes a boy called David for a walk in Kensington Gardens, and while he's there, he tells David all about Peter Pan, who is living in Kensington Gardens as a baby. All right? Um, and then two years later, in 1904, Peter Pan, now a little older, appears in the pantomime, the play, which you are all, I'm sure, familiar with, Peter Pan, or the boy who wouldn't grow up. Now, in 1906, the Peter Pan story was becoming so liked that chapters 13 to 18 of The Little White Bird were removed and republished as Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens, and then in 1911, the pantomime was converted into another novel called Peter and Wendy. So those are the four books that I'm going to be talking about. And I'm not going to talk about anything other than Barry's actual works. I'm not interested in later adaptations. Now, in reality, Barry was actually talking to the boys of the Llewellyn Davies family that he met in Kensington Gardens. And you can see here, we have uh, 
Peter is this boy here. This is the Peter of Peter Pan. Um, the stories were told first to George, the oldest boy, but then George began to grow up, rather. Um, there is Jack, and there is Michael. The stories were then told largely to Michael. Jack was not interested in fairies, particularly. Um, and we have here his mother, their mother, Sylvia Llewellyn Davis, and Arthur Llewellyn Davis, the father, and Nico, the baby. But he was born really after the era of the stories. Now, as I say, the first book takes place in Kensington Gardens, and Peter is only a week old. He's actually born in an egg on Bird Island, and then the birds take him and deliver him to his mother, who lives nearby, but he doesn't like it, and he climbs out of the window and flies back to Bird Island on Kensington Gard in Kensington Gardens, and then proceeds to have lots of uh, excitements and the adventures, and th those are those early stories. And they are very much about very early child development. The Peter and Wendy book, Peter is about seven years old, which you're probably more familiar with. Um, here, he st Peter steals three children, the darling children, from a house near Kensington Gardens and takes them away to a place called Neverland, where they have lots of exciting adventures with pirates and mermaids and Native Americans and so on. But after a while, the darling children go home to their mother and he is in, Peter is invited to go with them but decides that if he did, he'd have to go to school and he'd have to grow up and he'd have to be an adult. So he stays in Neverland. So he's the boy who doesn't grow up. Now, my argument is that what Barry is actually doing is exploring the contents of his own mind. He's thinking about what's going on in his head rather than describing events in the outside world. And in order to do this, he, Neverland is a kind of timeless daydream or night dream. It's just a dream, it's another place. Peter is actually Barry's memory of himself as a child, which is why Peter doesn't grow up, because you grow up, but your memory of yourself as a five-year-old stays as a five-year-old. So Peter can be any age, and indeed he moves around in age quite a bit, but he doesn't pass through age like a normal person does. And the fairies are actually Peter's imagination. So the fairies that Peter plays with are in Peter's mind, and the fairies share the childish psychology that Peter has. Now, Peter is described in the books as a betwixt and between, and it's not quite clear what, what he's betwixt and between. He's between all sorts of things. But I've divided my talk into four sections of betweens. The first is going to be between sleep and wakefulness because, as I say, this is about the contents of the mind, not about the real world. And one of the places where we all experience the mind divorced from the real world is when we're dreaming, daydreaming, night dreaming, those sorts of things. Then I'm going to describe between infant and adult because this is where the child development comes in. At the time, in about the 1900s, many people, including teachers and educationalists, thought that children were just small adults, and all you had to do was to fill their head with facts, and they would become responsible and sensible adults. We now know better, but in those days, they didn't. And Barry was a, a pioneer in recognizing that children's minds are different and need to be cultivated differently and brought on and allowed to develop until they become adults rather than just filled with facts. Then I will deal with between animal and human because this again is the Darwinian influence. After Darwin, it wasn't just a question of how did giraffes get to be here. It's a question of how linked are we to nature? How much of how we are is because we are also animals, how much of what we do is instinct, how much is um, learnt, rational, uniquely human behaviour. And that was very important 
at that time, and it remains important now, and we still get confused about it. And then my last section, I will deal rather more specifically with Darwin and neuroscience. So if we move to between sleep and wakefulness, the first thing one comes across is a lot of dreams in the story, um, and a lot of flying. Now, many of us fly in our dreams, um, so this takes us into that realm. Barry describes two particular sorts of dreams, vivid dreams, which are hyper-coloured dreams, like watching a glorious film, and lucid dreams, which are interactive, where you can actually think to yourself, oh, I don't like the way this, oh, no, I'm going to do that, I'll change the dream. You can interact with your own dreams. Now, some of you in this audience will be thinking, so what? That's, that's normal. And some of you are thinking, ooh, because a fair number of you will have lucid and vivid dreams and think it's perfectly normal, and a fair number of you won't and think that's fairly normal, but you may find each other out afterwards. But these are all well-known dream phenomena. But actually, things can be much more specific than that. And this actually is where I first got interested. I came across a passage which I'm going to read to you, and I thought, wow, there's something really special going on here. Um, all animals sleep. We don't really know why we sleep. We know we have to because we get ill if we don't. We know there's more to it than resting, because if it was just a question of replenishing our metabolism and our muscle strength, we could lie down. Sleep is actually quite dangerous because you can get attacked while you're asleep. There has to be a reason why we have to be unconscious. And one of the arguments is that we use the time when we're asleep to consolidate our memories, to sort them out, um, to form them into a story, to make sense of them. We say to each other, sleep on it. We tell our Kids, you know, go to sleep before your exam. Just try and consolidate all that revision so that you can do the exam in the morning. But Barry got there first, and I'm going to read you a passage because not only does it exemplify this, but it also shows you the beautiful prose with which Barry wrote, which is now sometimes lost from the other stories. Now, as I say, this was from Peter and Wendy, and Peter has stolen the darling children from the house. Or he's about to, actually. Mrs. Darling first heard of Peter when she was tidying up her children's minds. It is the nightly custom of every good mother, after her children are asleep, to rummage in their minds and put things straight for next morning, repacking into their proper places the many articles that have wandered during the day. If you could keep awake, but of course you can't, you would see your own mother doing this, and she would find it very interesting to watch her. It is quite like tidying up drawers. You would see her on her knees, I expect, lingering humorously over some of your contents, wondering where on earth you'd pick this thing up, making discoveries sweet and not so sweet, pressing this to her cheek as if it was as nice as a kitten, and hurriedly stowing that out of sight. When you wake in the morning, the naughtiness and evil passions with which you went to bed have been folded up, small, and placed at the bottom of your mind, and on the top, beautifully aired, are spread out your prettier thoughts, ready for you to put on. So that's what memory consolidation is for. But we also have a lot of other peculiar things, which are a little bit more obscure, that are now known as parasomnias. And these include hypnagogic hallucinations. These are really rapid, really vivid dream sequences before you've actually dropped off to sleep. You're, you're just dropping off and these things happen. There's false awakening where you dream that you've got up, had breakfast, and got as far as the bus stop sometimes. You roll over and you're still in bed and you have to go through it all again. There's intrusions into waking where you dream that you've forgotten to feed the cat and then during the day you keep worrying about not having fed the cat even though you haven't got a cat. <laughs> um, it can be quite disturbing, these sorts of intrusions. And then there are three more that are linked to the fact that when we are asleep 
Our muscles are very relaxed. We don't move much. We move about a little bit. It's that's so that we do not act out the things that we are dreaming. But of course, if the mechanism between the muscle control and the consciousness is disrupted, then you can act out your dreams and go sleepwalking around, around the house. There's another disorder called cataplexy, which is the exact opposite, where the muscle inhibition of sleep is switched on, even though you're awake and it's during the daytime. And people who suffer from this will fall to the ground or have a sort of funny turn or a little lapse. And then there's something called sleep paralysis, where when you wake up, you don't get back the muscle tone that you, you was switched off during sleep, and you are paralysed. And most people experience this a few times in a lifetime, and some people experience it a lot. They feel as if they can't breathe. They feel as if something's sitting on them. It's a, it feels as if you're being attacked by aliens or something. It's a very, very horrid and frightening experience. That's called sleep paralysis. And we know that Barry suffered from all of these things, and sleep paralysis in particular, because he actually includes descriptions of these in his more autobiographical works. And so this reminds us again that he is talking about himself and what it's like inside his head. Why else would he put all these bits of neurology into a book about Peter Pan? But he does. Now I'll move on to between infant and adult. And I remind you again that this is about children's minds being different and being needed to be treated differently rather than just filled with facts. And one of the things that a tiny baby has to do when it first arrives in the world is to work out what objects are. Things that move, that have permanence, that come back. You all play with your play peekaboo with your children. They find it fun. You cover something up, you bring it back, giggles all round. The children are not just giggling, they are learning about object permanence, the way things are, the way that if you drop something, it falls to the floor. All those sorts of things that you don't know when you're this big until you've interacted with the world that you're in. But there are also other objects, other things, I'll call them, that do not have permanence, things like shadows or smoke or the wind. And we learn to regard a shadow disappearing as normal, but a cup and saucer disappearing as not normal. And you're learning that when you're tiny. And what Barry does is he picks up on this thing that we have all learned to make amusing little twists and twerks in his stories. And we know something's going on, which is why we like the stories. So, for example, over here, this is actually Mamie's house, but it's equivalent to the Wendy house in another part of the story. The fairies have made Mamie a house. Um, and when they've finished it, they run up the chimney and they tie the smoke on with a piece of wire. And we think, whoops. That's not quite right, but it's fun. Um, he also, we also have to learn to tell the difference between animate and inanimate objects, things that move and things that don't move, things that might bite and things that don't bite. And you've all experienced that feeling when you're just doing something and something goes, and you think, oh, there's a mouse or oh, there's a spider or something. That's because you've slipped in, from inanimate to animate. And animate things matter in evolution. They might kill you. You see. So these are, again, things that children have to learn. And many children's stories have animals that talk or things, the trees that walk about. These are fairly normal for children's stories. Usually, they interact with the protagonist as if they are children's toys, in a way. They're there really only to talk to the child. One of the interesting things that Barry does is that the, 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 the animals and the plants have a life of their own. And sometimes they don't like the children. They don't go away, you know, in my way, you know, which is slightly unusual. And in this picture here, we have the old trees in Kensington Gardens that are staked up during the day, using the stakes as crutches and going around and having a good old gossip to each other after everybody else has gone away. But now I want to move on to something much more meaty, much more serious. This is something called 
socially constructed objects. This is a quite a complex argument, but it's very important in things like economics. Socially constructed objects are objects which operate because we believe in them. All right? So Father Christmas is a socially constructed object. He's not real, but he induces us to spend lots of money on children at Christmas, to put up pictures of red people and red people in red coats and reindeers and things all over our house. Father Christmas has enormous influence, but he doesn't exist. We know he doesn't exist. Small children think he exists as a real solid person. And there's a moment of understanding <laughs> in a child. And sometimes it's one of great disillusionment. And sometimes it's a moment of maturity. Um, but it's a, it's a transition when a child realizes that Father Christmas can still exist even though he doesn't exist. Now, the most important socially constructed object is money. Right? We cannot live without money, cash, and so on. But there is no such thing as money, because it can be anything you want it to be. If money can be gold or paper or cowrie shells, and indeed, even if it's a metal, if faith in the currency collapses, then it's not worth anything anymore. So it's, it's socially constructed. And Barry knew this at the time. And he has a story in which a five-pound note is used as a piece of paper and simultaneously as a unit of currency. And he divides the paper up geometrically. He cuts it up into small pieces. And he divides the currency up arithmetically. And it's all very mind-twisting. I'll tell you the story so you can get the feel for what he's doing. This is a paraphrase. It's not his exact words. Peter has phoned to Bird Island in Kensington Gardens, but cannot leave because he's forgotten how to fly. A poet, the sort of person who's never exactly grown up and who despises money, makes a toy boat out of a five-pound note and floats it across to Bird Island. But the birds did not know the value of money, so they give it to Peter to play with. And he thinks that the boat could be his escape. Not because he could float away in it, but because it is made of money. And he knows a little bit, but not very much, about money. He knows that money's valuable, but he doesn't know why. So he cuts the banknote up into tiny pieces and pays the thrushes, whom he's persuaded that money is valuable, to make him a nest. Peter then uses the nest as a boat and returns to the mainland in Kensington Gardens. He could, of course, have sailed away in the banknote boat. <laughs> But he, he knew enough about, about money to be blinded by that knowledge and to use that boat inappropriately. Um, now this is all quite subtle, but he, Barry uses it again, of course, in a phrase which I'm sure you're familiar with. Every time a child says, I don't believe in fairies, there is a fairy somewhere that falls down dead. That's because the fairies are part of the child's imagination. And without imagination, no fairy. Now, between animal and human, now we're getting on to the great anxiety of the end of the 19th, early 20th century about the, the, the broader implications of Darwin and evolution. And a big problem, which is still with us today, is the argument between nature versus nurture. How much of what we are is we're born like that? And how much of it is because we went to a good school or a bad school or, or whatever? And the conclusion that Barry comes to is that you can live and get by as an animal, but you can't use human things, human artifacts, without being taught about them. That's his divide. I'm not saying it's the correct divide, but that's his. And so this is what he says. Until Mamie was quite a big girl, she continued to leave presents for Peter in the gardens with letters explaining how humans play with them because she assumes that because people have made toys, he won't have any instinctive knowledge of toys, which is reasonable enough. But it is actually much more elaborate than that. The problem of knowledge versus instinct is quite important. 
why is it that animals can sometimes do things that we can't, or we have to learn how to do? Why is it that birds can forage and feed and make nests and live and raise their young, and unless we have a reasonable amount of education, we're not going to be able to do that ourselves? So what is it that, that they do? And he picks up on this when he says, second to the right and straight on till morning. That, Peter had told Wendy, was the way to Neverland. But even birds carrying maps and consulting them at windy corners could not have sighted it with these instructions. So even the cleverer birds couldn't have got there. Now, the solution to how instinct can masquerade as knowledge was actually solved in the later part of the 20th century by Conrad Lorenz and Nico Tinbergen. Now, what they did was they proved that animals didn't have magic knowledge, that what they were actually doing was picking up on stimuli that were readily available in front of them and responding to those stimuli. And then, particularly, say, in a courtship dance, what one animal does something and the other animal responds and then the first animal responds to that and so you get this big to-do. It's all done by what's immediately in front of the animal, not some special secret knowledge. And the way they did this was to, make, to, to look very carefully at what animals were doing, choose a stimulus that they thought, well, they think that's it, make it even bigger and then see if the animal's response was even bigger than normal. I mean, this is a trick exploited by pornography. It makes the stimuli more than they would normally be, and that's what the result you get. Um, but Barry had a, a, an inkling of this. The, the Native Americans are out looking for the pirates, so they're running around on, in Neverland. Not a sound is to be heard, save when they gave vent to a wonderful imitation of the lonely call, call of the coyote. The cry is answered by other braves, and some of them do it even better than the coyotes, who are not very good at it. Because the stimuli that exist in the natural world that have evolved are only just good enough to do the job. And if you can see what it is, you can make it bigger, and then you get an even bigger response. I'm sorry, I got you one behind, didn't I? I'm now moving on to this. Most people think that they respond rationally to the world that they encounter, and then they have feelings. Somebody says something horrid, so they burst into tears. This may not be the way it is. And two psychologists, James Lang and J William James and Carl Lang in the 1880s, put forward the notion that it's actually the other way round. We do not tremble because we are afraid or cry because we feel sad. We know we are afraid because we are trembling and we know we are sad when we cry. Now, this idea is not proven, but it's also not gone away. The notion that we rationally understand things and then emotionally respond has also not been proven. And indeed, we are ourselves. It's not a question of one part of the body looking after the other. But Barry seems to have realized this too. He has what is in effect a Cinderella story. And the Duke is looking for a wife and he doesn't like any of the ladies of the court, but then he calls for a, a, he falls for a serving girl. But he feels ill and his heart's gone wrong, so he sends for the physician who comes along and says, my Lord Duke, I have the honor to inform your excellency that your grace is in love. Never having been in love before, he doesn't recognize his own emotional reactions. And the, the illustration here is particularly nice, I think, given the time at which it was written, that the doctor opens a little hatch in the Duke's chest pulls out the heart on the end of a string, like a, a fob watch on a chain, listens to it ticking, pops it back and closes it down again. Now, that is a very, very modern, uh, mechanistic interpretation of how uh, human emotions work. 
But we have another example of it when David, remember the story consists of a man telling a story to David and David replies back in Kensington Gardens. David tells me that fairies never say, we feel happy. What they say is, we feel dancey. So the way you are is how your body is responding as well as your emotions, but your bodiliness. This is a modern concept now of, which is sometimes referred to, I think, as embodiment, that you're not just a, a brain with arms and legs. You are a whole body, and that's the whole of you. Now, I'm now going to go up a notch and talk about cognition and consciousness. But in order to do this, I have to fill you in a bit because most discussions of consciousness collapse because different people are talking about different things and so everybody misunderstands everybody. So I'm going to point out the three sorts of consciousness. There's sentience, by which I mean being able to experience the world. Um, if you look at a cat sitting on the patio in the sun, sunning itself, we imagine that it's experiencing the sunshine. Next to it is a plant. The flower has turned its leaves and its, its bloom towards the sun. It has reacted to the sun, but we don't think it's experiencing the sun. It's not feeling the warmth, it's just reacting to it whereas the cat, and the person for that matter, would be experiencing it. So sentience is about experience. And it remember the word primary representation, because I'm going to come back into that in a minute. So sentience is just experience. And staying in what people might call the sentient zone is all part of the modern concept of mindfulness of putting aside all those other aspects of life and concentrating on the here and now and listening to the rain um, is what mindfulness is all about. Then you have a sort of mundane consciousness, stream of consciousness, knowing that you arrived this morning, that you've got to go home later. You have a flow through time, normal adult consciousness. That requires what I will explain later as secondary representation then we have introspective self-awareness, thinking about what you're thinking about, getting right inside your head and thinking about what's going on in there. That's introspection. But consciousness covers all three aspects that I've just talked about. Now, mental representation of time and space is a concept that has been, it's been around for a long time, but it's been applied to brain science only in the last two or three decades. But it works like this. Primary representation is the mode that your brain is in when it is doing single channel processing of the present. You're just here, experiencing the now. Secondary representation is required to do that and something else at the same time, which is to have a sense of the past, to understand that there will soon be a future, and to understand that although you're here, you could get up and walk out. You could do something different. So secondary representation requires you to do two things at once, as it were. Um, fair enough. What's this got to do with... Barry. Well, my argument here is that Barry knew all about this in 1900, even though it only became science in 1990. And I'm now going to try and show this to you. Fairies, which I told you were Peter's imagination, only have single channel processing. Tinkerbell was not all bad, or rather, she was all bad just now, but not on the other hand, sometimes she was all good. Fairies have to be one thing or the other, because being so small, they unfortunately have room for only one feeling at a time. They are, however, allowed to change, only it must be a complete change. So that's the limitation of primary representation. Uh, now, ducks, apparently, also only have primary representation. They cannot tell you how they do what they do. They cannot think about what they're doing. Peter wants to know how to swim, so he asks the ducks. Uh, 
All they could say about it was, you sit down on the top of the water in this way, and then you kick out like that. What Peter really wanted to know was how to sit on the water without sinking. And they said it was quite impossible to explain such an easy thing as that. Now, more importantly, because Peter only has primary representation, because he's a very young child, and secondary representation comes in around the ages of four or five, but it's gradual, all right? Um, he's also amnesic. He cannot remember the past as events. He can learn from the past, and things get a quality of familiarity. He can recognize things as novel or familiar, but he can't remember episodes. So he goes to Solomon the crow, who's a special bird, to ask about where he came from. And sometimes when Peter returned, when he'd been out foraging somewhere, he did not remember them. Wendy was sure of it. She saw recognition come into his eyes as if he was about to pass them the time of day and go on. Once she even had to tell him her name. I'm Wendy, she said agitatedly. He was very sorry. So it's not just no memory, it's the specific defects of amnesia that Peter has because he is so young. And because he's so young and hasn't developed secondary representation, he cannot understand the future or of alternatives. To die will be an awfully big adventure. This is a very famous, stunning phrase from the Peter stories because of the time it was written shortly before the First World War. And indeed, some of the Belen Davies boys were killed in the war. But it's also important psychologically. And Barry picks up on the fact that alternatives go with it. So Peter never quite knew what twins were because there's kind of like two and one at the same time. Now you may say to me, but children have a wonderful imagination. Why am I saying they can't do these things? Well, yes, they do. But it's single channel, like fairies. And it was Barry's mentor, Robert Louis Stevenson, who made a very perspicacious um, remark. He said, a child cannot construct a story in the imagination, but has to act out the story, either in person, improvising with ordinary items to hand, or to proxy, by proxy, with toy soldiers and other toys. The child can do this in spite of whatever else is going on around them, intersecting but not joining the adult world. So we tend to talk about pretend play in children, but what we should really be talking about is immersion play. They become the thing that they're playing at, which is why they do it with such wonderfulness. Now, Solomon is a special bird. People even today think that crows have special intellects. Um, now, he does appreciate the future. His stocking contained 184 crumbs, 34 nuts, 16 crusts, a pen wiper, and a boot lace. When his stocking was full, Solomon calculated that he would be able to retire on a competency. So he can do it. Now, this, I'm a neuroscientist, right? The bit of the brain that you need in order to do secondary representation is the hippocampus, which is that piece of the brain here, which has been dissected out of a human brain here, and is shown next to an upside-down seahorse, because hippocampus is the word for seahorse. So that's why this bit of brain is called the seahorse, and this is the part of the brain that it's in. And if you have that bit of brain, then you can do secondary representation. Now, what the, what the hippocampus actually is, it's your sat-nav, if you like. It's the thing, it's the bit of the brain that allows you to go somewhere else, to think of the past, to think of the future, and so on. So that's why you need a hippocampus. Now, we're going to have a little quick diversion here, uh, just to bring Darwin and his friends back into it. The great hippopotamus question. This was a satire that appeared in the, another children's story, The Water Babies, written by Charles Kingsley. It was a satire on Darwin and Darwinians, as well as on child labor and other aspects of culture at the time. And one of the big rows at the time was whether the hippocampus was unique to humans. And Richard Owen, who was the superintendent of the Natural History Museum, said that chimpanzees did not have a full hippocampus. 
And T.H. Huxley, who was a great experimentalist and is shown here with the magnifying glass, um, got a chimpanzee brain, dissected it, and showed beyond all reasonable doubt that it has a perfectly normal hippocampus. But Richard Owen couldn't see it. And here we have a water baby in a jar rather than a hippocampus, but that's what the row was all about. And of course, T.H. Huxley was, was right. Um, but we must get back to um, secondary representation. Secondary representation is also necessary for meta-representation, thinking about thinking, and theory of mind, which most of you probably heard of by now, thinking about other people's thoughts. Now, the part of the brain that's involved in meta-representation is the frontal lobes, which is here. And this part of the brain here interacts with the frontal lobes. And that's interaction between the hippocampus and the frontal lobes allows you to think about thinking, and it allows you to think about other people thinking. And to get back to... One of the things, with thinking about thinking, the most important thing you have to do is to know what your own thoughts are. And if you lose that, what's called mental labelling, then you're in really big mental health trouble. Because you have to know when an idea is a fact, or a fantasy, or a wish, or uh, a memory, and so on. And if you can't do, and indeed in severe mental ill health, you cannot tell the difference. So you get developed delusions and hallucinations because you can't tell whether a thought is out there or in here. So you, you're hallucinating, you're deluded, you have ideas that can't possibly be right, and so on. And Peter actually lacks mental labelling. Peter heard loud noises that made him look round sharply, but they were really himself sneezing. And perhaps more interestingly, the difference between Peter and the other boys at such a time was that they knew it was make-believe, while to him, make-believe and true were exactly the same thing. Now, Peter also lacks theory of mind. And here we have an example of it. Wendy is flirting with Peter. Peter, what are your exact feelings for me? Those of a devoted son, Wendy. I thought so, she said, and went and sat by herself. You are so queer, she said, frank, frank, he said, frankly puzzled. And Tiger Lily is just the same. There is something she wants to be to me, but she says it is not to be my mother. Now, it's not, I don't know how to respond, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. It's what she wants to be to me that he can't understand. And theory of mind is all about logic, really. It's, it's thought to be about empathy, um, and indeed it includes that. But really it's because you don't know when to apply the empathy because you don't understand the logic of the other person's predicament, if you like. And this shows up in the stories because Peter fails to apply empathy, particularly here. He's stolen the children, and he can't understand that the parents are devastated because they don't know whether the children are ever going to come back. But Peter is just oh, callous, can't see it. Not because he's unkind, but because he doesn't understand the logic. Now I'm going to move on to the last section of my talk. I need to get a move on. Um, between Darwin and neuroscience. As I said at the, uh, at the end of the 19th century, people were very, very worried about animals and humans. And they began to think, well, if humans are animals, perhaps animals are humans. Are there, is there really any difference? And in about 1880, a dog cemetery opened in Kensington Gardens, which you can see on the left there. And within two decades, it was completely full with more than 200 gravestones of dogs, all nicely labelled with loving doggy so-and-so and what have you. It was then full and had to be closed. Such was this interaction between the status of animals and the status of humans. And Barry picks up on this. I'm sure you know from the pantomime that Nana is the dog of the household, but also the nana, because they, the nanny, because they can't afford a, a human nanny. And George, Mr. D 
I've lint on it, oh dear. I'm so sorry, I'll try harder. George, Nana is a treasure, no doubt, but I have an uneasy feeling at times that she looks upon the children as puppies. Oh no, dear one, I'm sure he know, she knows they have souls. I wonder, Mr. Darling said thoughtfully, I wonder, and Barry wonders too. Now a bit more hard science, and then we're nearly done. Um, in 1982, Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The Extended Phenotype, in which he pointed out that not only do animals' bodies and minds evolve, but the things that they make also evolve, like birds' nests. And if birds' nests got there by evolution, then people's homes got there by evolution. And indeed, everything that people do as part of their language and culture and so on is a product of evolution, not something that comes from above, as it were. It's a bottom-up process. Barry picks up on the bottom-upness of Darwin. Some of the paths, this is, these are paths in Kensington Gardens. That's the broad, broad, broad walk in Kensington Gardens. Some of the paths are ordinary paths, which have a rail on each side and are made by men with their coats off. But others are vagrants, wide at one spot and at another so narrow they can st you can stand astride them. They are called paths that have made themselves. And David did wish he could see them doing it. The interesting thing here is that Barry puts paths that have made themselves in capital letters. He knows he's saying something. Right? So where did he get this idea from? Well, I think he got it probably from T.H. Huxley, because although Richard Dawkins again then went on to talk to extend and develop what he called meme theory, he invented the word meme, an idea and the way that ideas evolve and are they, they're reproduced, they vary, they're selected by humans, and therefore they're the product of evolution. Richard Dawkins brought that to the fore and has made it a very modern topic. But it's been there ever since Darwin and Huxley. And what Huxley said, the struggle for existence holds as much in the intellectual as in the physical world. A theory is a species of thinking, and its right to exist is coextensive with its power of resisting extinction by its rivals. Reproduction, variation, selection, evolution for ideas as well as for bodies and animals, and so on. So why did Barry write Peter Pan? What was he up to? Well, I think he did it to enjoy the sentient and childish world of primary representation, living in the here and now as a child, and interacting with children whom he loved. And to escape the dull adult world of secondary representation, morning, afternoon, got to do this, got to do that, and avoiding the complex world of social interaction and meta-representation and theory of mind, which socially he struggled with, even though he was such an acute observer of human intellect and behavior. And so my last slide is, shows you the book that I have written on these themes, um, which take the ideas a little bit further and try and place Barry within Edwardian England and within the context of the life that he leads, led. So thank you very much. I will take questions if if wanted to, I can't see you very well. Um, there's one at the back there. Was it? Hello. Well, there's a lady who spoke, so why don't I take the lady who spoke? Yes, here. Am I a lady? Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, you really can't see. Um, uh, so, one frivolous observation: Can you, at this distance? Diagnose what's the matter with Trump's meta-representation, <laughs> which means that he's Peter Pan. The image of him naked floating was for <laughs> your talk. That's the first thing. They warned me <laughs> that I would get questions from off left. Thank you. <laughs> um, 
better pass on that one. No, 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 I, I won't pass on it. I will tell you why I'm a little reticent, and it is, I think, inappropriate to make what you might call psychiatric diagnoses of people that you've never met. This is not good practice. But <laughs> he is a very odd man. He is clearly cognitively unusual. Um, <laughs> to me, the thing that I hear him say is that he doesn't appear to know what he said until he said it. Yes. He says things like, I'm not sure if this is going to make sense, but... Now, we all say that a little bit when we're thinking about what to say. But he is a sort of single-channel man. He's sort of in the here and now, and he's very... He does respond very, very rapidly to things. And he says things that fit the moment, but are ghastly in the wider context. I am no supporter of Trump, but... Um, I need to behave appropriately. <laughs> yeah, I was powerfully re reminded of him when you were describing Peter. Yes, you, you are free to draw as many conclusions as you like from the talk that I have given. <laughs> I put it that way. <laughs> the, the, the second thing is, I'm not sure what the time was, but there was a big obsession about wild children, about sort of Caspar Hauser and the children of Aveyron. And, and was he drawing on that? Was he thinking about children who have been raised by, well, obviously, Ron... Oh! No, I don't think so. Um, I think he was very, very introspective and very, very observant of children. In the same way that Robert Louis Stevenson was saying, look, it's not really pretend play, it's immersion play. They are there. That's why children's play is so much better than the pretense of, of adult play. I think he was fully grounded in the kids that he was with. I don't think he was looking further afield. Though, of course, children apparently reared in the wild uh, have caused a lot of discussion from an evolutionary point of view. Though in many cases, the question as to how they got to be abandoned queries the understanding of what was going on. Now, there was someone at the back who deserves... Yes, please. Um, thank you. I love that. It was fascinating. Thank um, you. One thing I remember, I, I saw Peter Pan over Christmas and I'd forgotten how childish the father yes. is in the story. And I wondered if you had any comment. Yes. It was, it was quite striking. Barry is the narrator in all the stories. He is also... Well, Peter is Barry as a child, in my view. Mr. Darling is an inadequate adult, i.e. Barry. <laughs> Captain Hook is a, an adult wishing he could be a child and, not, and knowing that he can't be. That is also Barry. So all the men are Barry. And all the men are inadequate in their various ways, except Peter, who is inadequate merely by being a child and staying that way. Right? So, yes, Mr. Darling is an inadequate man. Also, all the adults are pretending. All the time they're pretending. Um, Mr. Darling is pretending to be able to cope when he can't. Captain Hawke is pretending to be a child when he's an adult. Um, Wendy, of course, comes in for a lot of discussion as to all this domesticity. But I think she's, she's pretending to be to fulfil her social role. I don't get the feel. Some people say Barry thinks that's what women ought to do. But elsewhere, he says that, uh, what is it, one, one girl is worth ten boys or something? And in his other works, in his lecture on courage, as he gave in St Andrews, um, he says the women will need to stand up and uh, vote and so on and so forth. He is actually a supporter of the intellect of women. So don't read Wendy as what girls ought to be, but perhaps as what girls have to be. Pretending, pretending, pretending. Yep. 
Um, just to comment on that, I feel like we all pretend to be adults, perhaps unwillingly, um, for most of the time. Um, just going back to what you said about wild children, um, there are undoubtedly allusions to things like, you mentioned the god Pan, but the god yes. Pan is also what um, the Pied Piper and Hamlin is yes. uh, based on, this sort of god who um, kidnaps children, um, and things like um, children in limbo, so Neverland could be read as limbo, for example. Yes. Do you think that that was unconscious? Do you think that it was sort of inescapable based on the context, or do you think that he did that consciously? Barry was undoubtedly extremely well-read. If there's something there, he will have read it. I mean, Shakespeare comes up page after page after page. He knew his Shakespeare almost by heart, as did many people in those days. They didn't think to think they were making an allusion to Shakespeare. It was what you did all the time. Um, there is some evidence that he actually read Darwin. Uh, he would certainly have come across the writings of other people. T.H. Um, Huxley taught H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells was Barry's best friend. I mean, the, 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 he would know all these things. Whether he would know specifically about the wild children, I can't prove it. Uh, would he know about myths of the Pied Piper? Of course he did, yes. There wasn't... There, there are photographs of his rooms in later life absolutely lined with books, and I don't think they're there for show. He read them. Um, I remember on, I think it's the first page, where Mrs. Darling is watching Wendy play, mm -hmm. and she observes that two is the beginning of the end. And I was wondering if there's something about that age that links into your theories that you've mentioned about cognitive stages of development. That's what he was talking about. He was talking about going through a milestone. The actual age, I don't think he was particularly accurate. And indeed, children aren't particularly accurate. They don't behave like the textbooks. And we all have lapses. I mean, we all have theory of mind lapses, even though we're not, as I'm sure you're aware, autism is associated with poor theory of mind. The technician this morning said that he had 200, um, uh, what do you call them, uh, PowerPoints and the like, sent to him, labelled, Hey Festival. <laughs> right? <laughs> and he sent a special letter out saying, put your name on it, not either Hey Festival or Final Version. Right? <laughs> now that is a dramatic lapse of theory of mind, because to me, it's the final version. To him, it's useless. Um, so we all have lapses. Children have lapses. Adults have moments of childishness. Um, the general theory for getting properly into secondary representation is around the age of four. But it's very difficult to do experiments on very young children. And experiments are now being done that take it back earlier and earlier. And any parent will see moments of secondary representation in a child long before it becomes absolutely and completely established. I think two is a bit young, but I'm not, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say, oh, he's wrong, because I don't know that there's a right answer. But we all know that there is a moment when, I think it's somebody else, I forget, so there's, there's a moment in a child's life where doors open and light comes in or something. And it's, again, that kind of moment of moving from the here and now into a, a bigger world, which is wonderful, but also a bit dull, a bit mundane in comparison to the play world. I thank you for your talk. It was very interesting. Um, I was thinking, correct me if I'm wrong on these dates, but obviously the, it was originally written in around 19... Well, it was, the play was performed in 1904. The book came out in around 1911, but then the, the script of the play came out in 1928 with, like, yes. with significant revisions. Do yes. you think, so previous, in the kind of, for the first two, there'd been 100 years of peace in the UK, science had been, had evolved hugely, and that's quite clear as you read a lot of his contemporaries, including him. Mm. Do you think that the effect of the First World War came across in his revisions of the play? Um. Desperately. I mean, Barry was himself devastated by the First World War. Um, George Llewellyn Davis was killed. Peter Llewellyn Davis was damaged by his war experiences. 
Um, many other things went wrong in Barry's life. And so uh, it was a terrible, terrible time for him. He did become very dark. Um, his revisions, people I think are somewhat puzzled by his revisions. They're not indecisiveness, he's up to something. But there were so many revisions that I took the text of Peter and Wendy for 1911, um, rather than trying to go through all the various changes. Though, interestingly, the, the passage I read you at the beginning about memory consolidation, that's actually a stage direction in one of the versions of the play. And you think, what on earth did the stage manager do with that? Because <laughs> he doesn't have to do anything about it. He's just trying to set the context. Um, no, I think he really is interested in inside his own mind. He's not commentating on the real world out there. He's damaged by it, but he's still a person thinking about childhood, adulthood, and what it's all about. You want to say, oh, <laughs> that's very kind of you. Thank you very much. And thank you.